You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And you might have noticed that the uh, capitalists are getting restless under the stewardship of their supreme figurehead Donald Trump, supported by the shadowy ones. They are, of course, calling for the economy to be saved over and above anyone else. Go back to work, they cry, our PM included. While at the same time, here in Victoria, a planned social distancing-sensitive protest outside the Mantra Hotel in Preston, today at 2pm, has been threatened by massive fines for threatening the COVID-19 safety laws. It's a crazy world we live in. So today we will hear from the Refugee Action Collective who called the protest and have been refusing to stop pressing that annoying front door buzzer on the federal government calling for the release into the community and the actual health services promises to the refugees held not only at the Mantra but also at other sites such as Kangaroo Point in Brisbane. The demonstrations have been... Uh, ramping up, really, rather than closing down. Anyway, uh, RAC held a Zoom meeting earlier in the week and we will hear from some excerpts from this meeting. We follow up with a word from Mark Sursak from uh, Tax Justice Australia as more European countries refuse bailouts to companies sheltering in tax havens. Is there some lessons for Australia here? We have some sad news from East Gippsland dispatches as we honour the wonderful Deb Foxkey, activist and ACT Greens Legislative Council rep who died last week. And we have a word with Don Sutherland about kickstarting Australian manufacturing. Keep listening. There's lots of sauce for your sausages this morning. And if you follow the chalk message on the pavement I saw on my walk beside the sea on Tuesday, be kind, be vegan, maybe I should say there is lots of marge for your toast. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yarrow country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. G'day 
You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station, 3CR. You might be wondering what this wonderful station is going to do about Radiothon this year. With COVID, a lot of events and benefits will be curtailed. So listen up. We are going online and on the airwaves through June, asking for your support to keep the fight going. You will hear more about how you can put your widow's might into the pool. Don't you worry about that. And leading off today is Rack Refugee Action Collective, who have ramped up the noise around the unhealthy detainment conditions for refugees in Australia's care and the inhumane and frankly illogical detainment of these people during COVID-19. To begin a week of action in support of the refugees, RAC ran a Zoom conference. We'll hear from Chris Breen and Lucy Horan and Craig Foster about the situation for refugees. Before we do, there is a social distance aware exercise your rights rally near the Mantra Hotel in Preston where refugees are being held scheduled for 2pm Saturday 9th. That's today. Um, so I was arrested and charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act for being one of the organisers of a safe car convoy protest calling to free the refugees across Australia. 29 refugee supporters have received a total of $48,000 in fines. Uh, we were also calling for the uh, remaining 400 refugees on Nauru and Papua New Guinea to be brought here to safety. As Claire said, our convoy was safe, detention centres aren't. And the case to free the refugees was already urgent and compelling before COVID-19. So refugees have been in prison offshore for six years and close to a year in Australia. I spent nine hours uh, in a police cell, which was very unpleasant. Uh, but here we have people who have committed no crime and been locked up for seven years. They spend 23 hours a day confined to their rooms. You know, I salute the courage of people like Moz and Farhad and Farhad Banesh, who's now in Mitre, who continue to organise protests um, every single day. Uh, we can't leave them to fight alone, and that's why we, you know, organised a protest in um, solidarity. And the case to free the refugees doesn't uh, rest on COVID-19, but COVID makes it critical. The detention centres are like cruise ships on land. Uh, the refugees have come here under the Medivac legislation, They've got all sorts of uh, underlying problems from Crohn's disease to um, diabetes to asthma that make them vulnerable. And we've seen in New York uh, how the virus can rip through enclosed locations like prisons. Uh, Rikers Island prison, there's now around 400 prisoners and close to 1,000 guards who've got COVID-19. There's been five deaths and there will be, there'll be more. And despite falling cases in Australia, we're not uh, far from out of the woods, you know, you people might have seen a second wave of infection ripping through Singapore uh, when they abandoned migrant workers uh, forced them, who were forced together in close quarters. Um, and abandoning any section of the population is a risk for all of us. I mean, just like in Victoria, we've seen the outbreak in the meatworks in unsafe conditions. And the, the charge of incitement against me last used, was last used against the Oz Study 5 um, in 1992. Um, so five activists were charged with incite to riot when a student rally of 3,000 ran past police up um, Parliament steps. They were found not guilty. If I am found guilty, it will be a worrying precedent that could be used long after the health laws are gone against uh, climate activists, against unionists or any protesters. And actually, I mean, as an example, unions already face incredibly restrictive laws around a legal right to strike and incitement could be used against uh, unionists to take industrial ac action outside that narrow enterprise bargaining window. 
There's also enormous hypocrisy as to how the health laws are currently policed. And so while refugee uh, protesters were fined and raided and charged, police themselves uh, promoted and organized on social media, a car convoy for a child's birthday, uh, got 200,000 views on their, their page with flashing lights playing happy birthday. Uh, the country fire authority, uh, the day after our protest, organized a convoy for a hundredth birthday, no fines. And perhaps most bizarrely, a right-wing anti-lockdown protest in Gippsland of 70 people with no social distancing was allowed to take place by police. It wasn't shut down like the refugee protest was uh, shut down. Those who turned up didn't have their details taken and were fined, unlike the refugee supporters were. And so I think the, the police action was, in, was designed to intimidate. They raided my house. They seized my computers, including my 15-year-old son computer, my work computer for the education department. I'm a teacher. They're saying it'll be eight months to, before I get them back. I've got a court hearing on Wednesday to try and get them back uh, more quickly. It was aimed to send a signal to us, but also to unions and social movements to deter any kind of safe um, public protest. And in, in that regard, it was fantastic to see uh, just a couple of days ago, a 150 strong car convoy uh, with bikes and cars in New South Wales on May Day, uh, calling for no worker to be left behind. Initially, police also threatened them with big fines. But when the Maritime Union stood their ground and police saw how big it was going to be, they backed off. And we need to build that kind of support for refugees here. And actually the Greens um, MLC, David Shoebridge uh, said about that uh, action. He said, this is an essential action, confirming the right to remain politically engaged and demand a fairer world in the face of laws that empower police and threaten our right to peacefully demand social change. So the Refugee Action Collective says that public, safe public protest calling to free the refugees is essential. And there's overwhelming support for uh, this position. Um, over 1,600 people have signed our petition. There's now five trade unions, three federal senators, six MPs, prominent lawyers, doctors, academics, um, Berez Buchani, Aziz, who've called for the charge against me to be dropped, the fines to be dropped, for safe protests to be allowed, and above all, to free the refugees into community care. I guess I want to end with just a, a little word on strategy in the current uh, difficult circumstances. Um, particularly because Julian Burnside said he feels like it's he's on we're on mute. And I think those times that we have won things, it's when we've been loud and noisy, the let them stay campaign, the, the kids off all off campaign. And so while online protest has its place, I think there is a premium on public visible action at the moment. You know, our protest made every TV news channel. And when there's been that mute media silence, that's important. It also generated uh, solidarity between us and refugees. Uh, RAC's got more actions coming up. There's a week of action starting tomorrow that Claire will tell you about in a little bit. And I guess the other part of the strategy is perhaps unions and labor. Under the health laws, it's still possible to take industrial action. And we wanna think about ways to raise the refugee issue at work like Teachers for Refugees did with the Kids Off All Off campaign. Federally, uh, the federal Labor MPs, Jed County and Peter Khalil have importantly called to release the refugees at the Mantra Hotel. Um, and we want to increase those calls. Uh, the refugees came under the Medivac laws that Labor supported. And so there are already people from Manus and Nauru who are living with us in the community. And it should be possible to shift, the, to shift Labor on this question of calling for the refugees to come out. Now it is the coalition that is responsible for the torture of refugees for the last seven years, uh, you know, unquestionably. 
But if we can shift Labor, it could ramp up uh, pressure on Morrison and Dutton to do something about the, the, the hell holes. And finally, we certainly call on Premier Daniel, Daniel Andrews to stand up to Scott Morrison's torture of refugees, to make a public comment like he did with the Let Them Stay campaign, which made a, a difference uh, back then. And to use the considerable health laws uh, that you know, he does have to free the refugees uh, rather than against those of us who are drawing attention to their plights. Um, thanks. I just wanted to uh, just talk briefly about the protest that actually happened because Chris um, was arrested and he didn't get to actually experience the, um, the cavalcade as it happened. And I just wanted to um, say and, you know, reiterate that it, um, it was actually a really awesome protest. And, um, you know, Farhad and, and Moz were kind of saying about the feeling of solidarity that they felt on the inside. Definitely for those of us, I think there are about 30 or 40 of us who were kind of congregating down in the office works car park on Bell Street, you know, we could see what was facing us. There were a whole bunch of police cars like loitering around the mantra as we were like really very, very slowly driving up Bell Street to meet them honking our horns and stuff. But the feeling, even though we knew at that point, by that point, what we were getting ourselves in for, the feeling of solidarity and strength to be standing up um, so openly and collectively um, and to be so defiant, you know, to be able to actually take um, action that defies the laws um, and to expose, you know, expose the laws themselves, but also to be able to draw attention to the hypocrisy that's keeping those guys in the detention centre It was a really powerful action. Um, and I, you know, I hope I, I just want to encourage other people the um, the exercise action at the end of the week is also I think it's going to be a really important one, the ones that um, have been happening in Mantra and so on. Uh, sorry, not at Mantra, at Kangaroo Point look like that's been excellent. Um, we want to continue that. Um, because I mean, I think for a lot of us, it's frustrating. We can see the guys on the inside doing the rooftop protests or the, or the sign protests or the hunger strikes. and. To be able to, you know, to be able to show our the extent of our solidarity is a really hard thing to make tangible. Um, and you know, at different points in the refugee campaign over the years, there have been, you know, attempts to kind of like bust open, you know, by doing things like climbing spires or, um, you know, stopping traffic and things like that. And I think the thing that made the mantra action successful and other ones that I've been involved in, like the teachers walk off, is that. Um, they're, they're, they're disobedient, they're challenging, they're, you know, even law breaking, but they have broad support and they have lots and lots of people sympathetic to the cause. And I think we have to do that dual sort of action, which is making sure the Labor for Refugees groups and the Greens and, you know, all of the different community groups, people who live around the mantra, etc., like reaching out to all of those different groups of people bringing them on board, but also refusing to stop, um, you know, when the police say stop, you know, we can't, we can't accept the parameters um, that they've put in front of us. So I think that the, the two actions need to go hand in hand um, as we keep going. Craig Foster, would you like to say a few words? Uh, we're about to wrap up the meeting and you've missed some of the discussion, um, but we did have some questions come through for you. Uh, in particular, um, the question around how can we get more high-profile high people involved in the campaign and what lessons can we learn from your successful campaign with Hakeem? Um, so I might just see if we can unmute you and hear a few words before we end tonight. Oh, you're unmuted. So go I'm ahead, unmuted. Craig. Yes, thank Beautiful. you, Chris. 
Um, yeah, look, sorry guys that I, I couldn't be here all evening. Um, I was really delighted to hear from Farhad and Moz. Uh, hi Farhad, up there in Brisbane. You know, you know that you have the support of so many thousands of, of people in Australia. And of course, um, you know, it's always wonderful to listen to Julian and, uh, you know, and the experience that he has in, in this place is both um, uh, compelling, but also worrying. You know, as he said, this has been going on for far, far, far too long. I discovered that when I went to Port Moresby last October, uh, following the Hakim campaign, uh, you know, I felt compelled to go and find out what Australia had actually been doing. And I've made it uh, my business to try and talk to broader Australia since that time in some ways through the campaign of Game Over, but other, in other opportunities, every, every chance that I get to speak in, if you like, the broader media. Um, one thing I might say is that I do think um, that um, there's no question that um, in time, uh, people like Farhad and all of those who have been detained, and particularly all those who were, were sent offshore, are going to be like Aziz and Beruz. They're going to be in a sense, Australia's national conscience. And many of them, whether they're in New Zealand or in Switzerland, uh, you know, they, they're telling stories now that Australia needs to hear. Uh, doesn't, most of Australia doesn't know because of the concentration of media and because of the way that this, this issue has been handled. And I see it every day, you know, and people that I know and trust and respect and, and love uh, and you start talking about asylum seekers, refugees, and the misinformation is just extraordinary. You know, good people, really great people, just they don't care. And they care about a lot of things, and they would care if they knew the truth here, but they don't because they haven't been told it. I know at the start of this call, some of you alluded to, and as I just um, came back in, I think you're talking about the 1,400 people from 2013 to 2017 who actually came to Australia. So some of the discussions that I had when I was in PNG where people were saying, well, half our boat came here and the other half went to Australia. And it's, that, those, it's the absurdities of the situation that, um, that have been buried and that I think Australia needs to know. I read not too long ago a good book, I think it was um, uh, Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs, and it talked about, you know, the th thousand plus asylum seekers or refugees who are offshore in these centres on the 19th of July 2013 and who had to be removed to Australia in order to put the new refugees and asylum seekers there. <laughs> so, you know, again, Australia doesn't know that. I mean, it's incredibly absurd. So, you know, um, I know that we, we're kind of, you know, preaching a little bit to the converted, but... I always like to just try to give you the perspective and thank everyone that's on the call because I know you've been fighting in this space for a very much longer time than I. You know, I'm very, I've only come in recently. And what I say to Australia, I'm just very honest. I say, look, I didn't say enough before. And so I understand where you're at, but mine and others' roles is to give you the truth and just let you know because I do believe when they get the truth in the right forums, then we're going to be able to change this altogether so for all of you who've been involved thank you you know this concentration of media has, has really been a very significant issue in the Australian democracy for quite a long time and we've seen it now during this climate change and in a whole heap of these uh, you know these uh, debates which become binary or the polemic 
which simply doesn't need to happen. But we have too few voices, and we and and I think this is one issue that has found difficulty outside of campaigning and some wonderful campaigns like Kids Off Nauru, for instance, um, to make enough noise that you know Australia or certainly government has to listen. Two things I might say on that. Yes, one of my roles is to try to um, talk to, if you like, um, you know, I don't know if broader Australia is, is a good term, but anyway, um, to talk to people who aren't otherwise um, hearing these messages. And it's just about getting the truth out um, and, um, and articulating to them, you know, what Australia has done uh, and why it is that we should stop. That that's, comes in many forms, and you've all t- talked about them tonight, okay? And, you know, you talk about values. Julian often talks about, you know, wh- where Australia should be. We talk about human rights and the, and the breaches of those human rights. You talk about the International you know, Convention on Status of Refugees and, and now the Migration Act. So whether we go from legal to political uh, to uh, humanitarian to Aust- uh, this discussion around Australian values, in every one of those, I think we need all of those sectors, but in every one of them, we've got ground to make up here. So one of the reasons I'm so actively involved, feel strongly about it is because I don't believe this is in the interests of Australia ourselves for what we thought that we stood for and that I still dream about and believe in. And it's certainly not in our international interests, in my view. Finally, in terms of the um, media, um, you know, we might just leave with, with these thoughts, but the thing about the last couple of years of being, you know, in this space as well is that I'd like to see, um, and I'm not actively involved in many of the chambers or the peak bodies or any of those things. I tend to just kind of sit a little bit on the outside. Um, but what I would say is I just wonder whether we can have some more, um, you know, some more a strength in numbers and, and some more a clear direction um, and, you know, and strategic approach across the whole sector, then, um, because this is a, has become a difficult problem, but it's one that Australia absolutely needs to solve. And I think we've seen, you know, what I've seen in relation to Mantra and these other things, you know, it's got a whole heap of campaigns, you know, and there's just incredible, wonderful people who are helping out here. Right? Amazing. Some of the best human beings I've met are in the human rights, human rights legal uh, and human rights advocacy space, including refugees and asylum seekers. Amazing human beings that I'm delighted to know. But there's a million, you know, there's a million. And if this is, if Australia is going to come to to the party on this, and they, they will, you know, I think we need to combine all of the forces. And in some ways, I think that it suits a lot of people who don't want to see movement to see a lot of fraction and to see a lot of diversity um, and when people have to, you know, fight for funding and, uh, and you know, all of these things, I think sometimes, it, you know, th- that might drive individual campaigns and other things, but this is a really big problem that's been around for a long time and, you know, all of us together really need to solve it. So I've said to a number of organisations, just let me know, you know, everyone working together to bring Australia along, to let them know the truth and what's happened and let's solve it all together okay that to me is what it's about and why is because i all of us have met these human beings it was a privilege to go and meet berus and um and uh, uh valley puppy and samad and sanusi and ezatullah 
and, uh, you know, uh, Moz and to, you know, sit down with them, to have a meal with them sometimes, to actually learn about what had been done, what had been done to them and, and, and what we've perpetrated as a country on innocent people. So I'm, I'm with you in the, uh, I'm with you in the fight. I'm with you because they are, as Julian keeps saying, they're just human beings, obviously. Um, but, you know, the fact that we have to keep saying that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, but also because I believe in my heart that Australia needs to overcome this because this can't be what we are as a country. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. The Tax Justice Network in Europe has reported recently that the access of tax avoidance, the UK, Switzerland... Luxembourg and the Netherlands are shielding companies from paying billions of dollars to countries where their profits have been made. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the dire social degeneracy of these practices and led Poland, Denmark and France to fight back with no bailouts for companies registered in tax havens. I was wondering what lessons Australia could learn from this as public amenities and government services are in the forefront of the maintaining public well-being during the pandemic. I mean, it shows the weakness of relying purely on private enterprise. I spoke to Mark Zerzak from the Tax Justice Network of Australia for his view. The issue has been that a number of the European countries and, to be honest, the, the US itself as well, and particularly some of its states, have actually been facilitators of tax avoidance by large multinational corporations. So um, the City of London, the Netherlands, Ireland, Luxembourg um, have all provided facilitating environments to help corporations avoid paying taxes in the place they're actually operating. Uh, Look, to a degree, that's different than Australia. Australia hasn't, you know, by and large, its laws don't do that and in fact also because it has maintained a reasonable corporate income tax rate um, it's actually more on the side of trying to make sure that places like Australia can actually tax companies in the places they are uh, doing business that doesn't always mean that Australia the Australian government is acting as a friend of developing countries that are being um, cheated out of out of the revenue they deserve because of tax avoidance uh, but look, by and large, Australia certainly doesn't uh, facilitate tax avoidance by multinational corporations. Yeah, there's some major companies, uh, extra- uh, extraction companies, uh, that are generally uh, f- uh, US-based, uh, but from other places as well, that don't... Pay- oh, certainly, look, uh, there are certainly Australian companies, there are certainly Australian companies that would seek to avoid paying tax in Australia... Uh, my point was more it's not the Australian government that facilitates those, whereas for a number of European countries, uh, they have deliberately have laws that facilitate tax avoidance by multinational corporations from other countries where the, the company is actually doing um, business. Yeah. Um, uh, but look, certainly there are Australian companies that avoid paying the taxes they should, and they do that through a number of means, often facilitated through secrecy jurisdictions or more commonly called tax havens um, and you know they'll do things like artificial debt loading where they, they loan themselves money from a, a secrecy jurisdiction and then charge themselves interest on the money they've loaned themselves and they get to claim interest repayments as a tax deduction 
back into a country where they're not paying any tax would be a, a, an example of tax avoidance. Yeah, we saw this down in um, Longford, the gas, offshore gas, that company, uh, Exxon, was shown to pay uh, minimal, if any, tax in Australia. But, um, of course, they hold an awful lot of uh, jobs and they also garner support, uh, financial support, through uh, various uh, means within the uh, local context because they're seen as uh, providers of, uh, of uh, jobs. That's what's commonly said, isn't it? Yeah, look, it, 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 certainly companies will attempt to use um, their employment creation as a excuse for them uh, not paying the taxes that they, they should be paying. I don't think they should be low off the hook by any stretch of the imagination there. But look, on the on the positive side, I mean, one of the things that is under discussion at the international level is a move to actually require companies to have to pay a minimum level of tax globally. And that would then mean that if a company wasn't paying that minimum level, minimum rate of tax, uh, countries where it's operating would be free to simply seek more tax from it to bring its tax payments up to that minimum rate. And, and that's seen as a way of undercutting the business model of these secrecy jurisdictions that, that uh, seek, to let, seek to facilitate companies not paying the taxes they should in the places where they're actually operating. Well, the COVID situation has put everybody on notice, really, hasn't it? Because a whole lot of public facilities have been required to support getting the country out of and the population out of this health crisis. So hospitals, nurses, uh, all the uh, educate, all these different areas that are actually uh, public facilities have been, uh, and lots of private businesses have been uh, falling back onto uh, public money to uh, survive. So uh, we're seeing the importance of government here, but also we're seeing some large companies wanting to get bailouts or get parts of uh, that public money. Has uh, the uh, tax justice organisation got some ideas around that? Look, it certainly has at the global level. It's certainly been arguing that companies that have subsidiaries in secrecy jurisdictions or tax havens shouldn't be receiving bailout money. Um, that, that if a company is going to get bailout money, it also should have a clean tax record. It shouldn't have any tax scandals um, there. It should also have very transparent accounts and it should be complying with global standards around country-by-country country reporting and its voluntary accounts should also be of a a high standard of transparency as well. It's ultimate beneficial owners, so the people who are really the beneficiaries of the ownership of the company should also be in the public record. And, you know, any company that has sort of secret ownership behind it shouldn't be receiving bailout money. And finally, there should be commitment from any company that was to receive a bailout that it would continue to maintain its employment levels so that the, the benefits are flowing on to employees. And it certainly should be prohibited from things like share buybacks or things that would benefit the senior management or the shareholders uh, specifically any bailout should be about simply keeping a company open to allow its employment to continue and to allow it to conduct the business that it was intending to to uh, conduct but it shouldn't be free money for the shareholders or for the senior 
management to do with as they like. Uh, look, I think in, in the Australian context, the bailout issue is probably less likely and, and what we focus on from the Tax Justice Network in Australia is more around as the government has ramped up its spending that uh, the companies it does procurement with should have a clean tax record and should have transparent accounts and should have their owners disclosed. So it's been more around the government contracting, which has has increased uh, through some of the expenditure that's going on and and certainly will continue into our recovery period. That's the place where we think the the attention needs to be for for the Australian government. The thing, obviously, is from, from a tax justice perspective, I mean, we have grave concerns for developing countries particularly two who are going to be hard hit and have been hard hit during this crisis. I mean, there are uh, lots of people in developing countries that have lost their jobs in, in export industries and those those countries will need uh, to be able to get their tax bases back up. So it's more than ever are we going to need international cooperation around having a fair tax system at the global level and we need some of these initiatives like the one that has been under discussion to say, well, multinational companies need to be paying a certain level of tax globally at a, at a minimum rate to ensure that in part and, and to ensure that developing countries are able to benefit from some of the, the tax reforms that have been occurring at the global level so that they can actually have the tax revenue as well because it's people in some of those countries are going to be hit even much harder than you know people people here not that people in Australia have done it easy either but um, certainly it's, it's hit some of the developing countries very hard. And, uh, you know, you don't want to see those people left unsupported. And I guess uh, part of that is um, laws around uh, transparency uh, of records across countries. Absolutely. So, so some of the, the two, two of the big asks that Tax Justice Network has had, one is, is global country-by-country country reporting by multinational companies, so that's them having to report on all their financial affairs broken up by country level so you can actually see where their profits are being where they're actually doing business and are they paying their taxes in the place where they're really doing business or are they shifting their profits elsewhere and that then allows tax authorities to take steps against them should they be tax avoiding Um, and the other the other big ask has been uh, public registers of who are the real owners and controllers of companies to basically be able to expose any artificial legal structures that are being set up to try and conceal uh, who owners are to, for the purposes of tax avoidance and other nefarious activities. So they're certainly the kind of global things that we would hope to see and, and they are certainly transparency related. Tricky world, that, looking for things. I, I, I was given a job to search titles for who owns different parts of uh, Southgate uh, with all those buildings there and uh, all the rest of it. And when you start looking into those corporations how it becomes increasingly difficult to see who owns what. Incredible. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, any any um, investigators into corporate affairs would share your experience um, in that space. It can often be very difficult. And uh, certainly at the global level, we've, we've also seen people who set themselves up as professional directors, uh, directors, nominee directors, so they're not the real owners, of, they're not the real director of the company, they're hiding who the real owner and director of the company is and, um, you know, there are people who will be the directors on thousands of companies, uh, so they make it a sort of full-time role to help people conceal their ownership and, and that makes it much harder for anyone wanting to dig into who's really behind these companies.
When you think of community, 
think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Over the last few weeks, Solidarity Breakfast has been featuring dispatches from East Gippsland, reminding us all of the far-flung areas of Victoria and the lives of people dealing with the aftermath of the bushfires. This week, Fiona York features a chat with a great environmental and social rights campaigner, Deb Fosky. In a most strange and poignant turn of fate, when Fiona was putting this piece together, Deb, who had been suffering with cancer, died. Before we play this lovely audio tribute to Deb, I will read an obituary that appeared in the Greenleaf Weekly on May the 3rd, written by Jim McElroy. Dr Deb Foskey, a decade-long fighter for the environment and long-time member of the Greens in the Australian Capital Territory and Victoria, died on May the 1st after a 12-month struggle with cancer. She was 70 years old. Foskey was born in Bacchus Marsh, Victoria. In the 1970s and 1980s, she was instrumental in the formation of several national parks protecting old-growth forests through her work in the concerned residents of East Gippsland. She had moved to the area in the 1970s and later transferred to the ACT for her children's education. Foskey studied a Bachelor of Arts in English and philosophy and a diploma of education and worked as a primary and secondary school teacher. In 1994, she completed a Master's of Letters in Human Ecology at the Australian National University, looking at Canberra's development through a political and ecological lens. In 2003, she completed a doctorate analysing the role of community movements in the framing of the Program of Action for the United Nations Conference on Population and Development. She was elected to the ACT Legislative Assembly for the seat of Malonglo in 2004. She was the sole Green member at the time. In late 2008, Foskey returned to Cabinander in East Gippsland where she worked as a consultant for the Centre for Rural Communities from 2009 and at the Tubbard Neighbourhood House from 2011. Foskey ran as an independent candidate in the 2018 Victorian election for the seat of East Gippsland and for the Victorian Greens in Gippsland in the 2019 federal election. She had previously stood in the local council elections in the East Gippsland region. Foskey was a passionate and determined campaigner for the forests, community action and the environment. Her life and work will be well remembered by her devoted daughters, her wide family and her many friends and colleagues in the Greens and ecological movement in the ACT, East Gippsland and beyond. Hi, this is Fiona back again with another dispatch from East Gippsland. Today we're hearing from Deb Foskey. Deb moved to a really isolated pocket of East Gippsland, right up near the border of New South Wales, in a place called Cabinandra. Uh, she was one of a group of people who moved up there looking for an alternative lifestyle at the time in the early 70s, um, building their own houses, growing food, home births, you know, raising their kids, things like that. And they had some really epic battles with the Shire back then um, over building regs and, and you know, all of those sorts of things that alternative lifestylers had back in the day. And I imagine they were a bit of a shock for the farming community up there at the time as well. 
Um, Deb moved to Cam Canberra for a little bit and she was in the ACT Parliament as an elected member for the Greens. And then she moved back to East Gippsland about 15 years ago, which is when I met her. Um, she worked in the Tubbett Neighbourhood House and she was the East Gippsland Neighbourhood House Networker. She also taught my kids at the Goongra School and she's a great community worker and network builder. So what we're about to listen to was recorded when Deb was running for council a couple of years back. I interviewed her in Bansdale, which is the capital of East Gippsland Shire, but it's more than 200 kilometres from where she lived in Cabinandra. So let's have a listen. I've always been interested in the development of my community. I moved to East Gippsland in 1972, um, part of that wave of of settlers that happened at that time. Circumstances caused me to have to move away for my children to go to high school, which is something people in remote communities face. That led to me being elected to, to the ACT Parliament. Naturally, I learned heaps through that. I mean, ACT Parliament's quite a different kettle of fish to the East Gippsland Shire Council, but I'm, politics is pretty much the same everywhere. I've learned a lot of one about government how it works and I know the change doesn't occur overnight that you've just got to chip 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 away I learned about representing people finding out what people want and speaking for them and I learned how to get in there and lobby for them very happy to see that the library bus is being pictured here because the library bus comes to Tubbett every two weeks and I work at the Tubbett Neighbourhood House and we organise our community events around the library bus being there, partly to encourage people to come and use the bus, but also because it's a chance to get people together. And, uh, and the, you know, it's an isolated area. A lot of people live on their own. Every chance to get them together is taken. The library bus is our cultural connection to Bairnsdale and in the Shire. It comes every fortnight brings the books that you order, very helpful librarian and uh, let's, all, let's hope that despite our low numbers that the Shire sees it worth continuing this service because it is so valuable. Not only do we get the books, we get the person and our community gathers around that person. We have our community lunches when the library bus is there and it's a chance for people to get together and talk. It, it always strikes me as very odd that they made the centre of the Shire, the service centre, Bensdale. I mean, I understand Bensdale is the largest town in the Shire, but on the other hand, it's also at one edge of the Shire. It's not a central town at all. And basically it means that uh, most towns and communities to the east are really alienated from Shire services. I would say the average trip for most people is at least two hours to access Shire and not to mention other state services. Living on the border, it's a little bit ironical because my nearest actual town is in New South Wales, that's Bombala. Um, but just because I'm, I live in Victoria and I live in East Gippsland Shire, and because you know, my, my network of neighbourhood houses is 
Victorian network. It just means that I'm constantly travelling at least three hours to attend most meetings. But I, I, I do feel that we've probably got the technological capacity available to us now to make it easier for isolated people to participate. I mean, if the NBN was about anything, surely it was about making services more accessible to people. And as we see, actually, the human side of services is declining, people being asked to go to a website for an awful lot of government services, and yet it hasn't yet improved democracy. So I think that's the big challenge in East Gippsland. For a start, we know not everyone is on the internet, and it could take a generational change, but on the other hand, it would bring... Um, it would bring the ability to participate a lot closer. So if I got elected to council, for instance, that is one thing that I would work on. Otherwise, you know, I'll be travelling a good six hours, at least twice a week. And uh, I think that might explain why there's so little representation from outside that population-rich area of Bairnsdale, Meetung, the coastal strip. If we think local first, and then, having exhausted all that, then we go outside. Not go outside first. If we want someone to write a report, if we want someone to build a bridge, first of all, let's, let's look locally. Um, if we don't have the expertise, then what can we do about developing that expertise or supporting people who are interested in learning it? So that's where the Shire comes in and looks at education in the area and supporting people. We went out today, we looked at um, the Foundry, which is a, an artist-run retail outlet, a really lovely place. That People got together and made that happen. It's again that question of let's use what we've got, let's grow what we've got and, um, and improve our economy. Every community is meant to have a community plan. It gets stamped off, printed in a lovely glossy booklet. What happens next? In many cases, very little. How about some money goes with that community plan and the community itself delivers those priorities to itself as suits that community, not as suits the Shire in its own timeline, in its own style. And uh, there we have a form of participatory budgeting it means that people feel their, um, their involvement in the community planning process actually led to something. And that might cut down some of the cynicism that people have about Shire. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good River running free, you know how 
and here's a man who knows what he's talking about. He chairs the board of the airline that used to be our airline, and hasn't this crisis shown just how more efficient is the private sector over the sclerotic public sector? And he's on the Woodside Fossils board, and he chairs the AFL, a, a great man. Well, filthy rich ain't hard, asked on the ABC whether reviving the virus struck patient would involve overcoming that problem bring employers have so complained about for years stagnant wage growth which they just can't seem to solve try as they might because they so want workers to be much more highly paid if only they could after getting his breath back poor filthy rich etc said the important thing was to get the economy up and running again get people back to work and then then out there somewhere in future land when the economy has picked up when productivity has improved when well all the reasons they couldn't pay workers before the virus are all the reasons they can't pay workers during the virus but workers the promise of future land a future of productivity and flexibility uh, but going back to normal filthy rich ain't we uh, uh, we asked aren't you concerned you might catch the other virus the health one thankfully Filthy Rich Ain't Bad was thankful. We'll be making our invaluable and, might I say, largely unappreciated contribution to the common good, to the commonwealth, by continuing to meet in our online boardrooms. So the workers will be at risk. Ignoring the fact that the boardroom is where the real work is done, are you suggesting workers should be so inflexible, so inconsiderate of the common good, that they put the health of the whole economy at risk? Well, what can we say when he puts it so sensibly? I guess that's why we need great humanitarians like Filthy Rich to run the economy for us. Except when something goes wrong and they need the government to preserve it for them. But from those prepared to work their guts out in the boardrooms, albeit teleconference boardrooms at the moment, to those who would bludge on the public purse, well, good news for the economy, they'll only be able to half-bludge before long. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Iceberg said the doll would have to return to the level on which doll budgets have been whooping it up for years when the time limit for the increased doll runs out. There is no money tree, he said. Uh, hang on, hang on. Uh, $132 billion to pay the boss's wages bill. Billions and billions more other handouts for the caring employees in business class so no no he's right there, there's no money tree suddenly coronavirus has found a roof over the heads of homeless people when we were told for eons it was impossible governments have found accommodation so homeless people should be hoping COVID-19 drags on and on because presumably when it's declared over the governments will discover providing a roof for their homeless citizens is again impossible and they'll be thrown back onto the streets and parks and benches and gutters. Thus, a moment of hope on a telly news the other night reporting on the way the New South Wales government has housed homeless co-citizens. With the Minister for Homelessness asked, what would happen to these people post-coronavirus responding, we want to build. That was the moment of hope. At last, enlightenment. We want to build public housing for all who need it, I anticipated. What a moment. We want to build, he said, safe and secure lives for people. 
no mention of a roof over the heads of those who need one, but, but in government, nebulous speak, a safe and secure way of doing absolutely nothing. But for that brief moment, forgive the tautology, brief moment, I really thought his next words would be public housing. Remember, two weeks ago, we were all moved in the week leading up to Train Killer Celebration Best We Forget Day as we commented on those delightful and moving photos day after day of dear little children in oversized slouch hats and bearing rows of medals and telling us how important it is to celebrate train killing, which preserves and represents true Blue Aussie values and gives us the freedoms we enjoy to go overseas and kill other people and double-spread God on how to celebrate the great day under the restrictions of lockdown, leaving us to ponder how unfree we would all be today if we hadn't invaded that wrong beach and been slaughtered, we'd be under the jackboot of Turkey's dictator heard them up again, a, a revived Ottoman Empire. So apparently, last week they ran out of kids or, or realised it was challenging lockdown to drag kids out and pose them in front of some monument to train killing because I expected naturally we'd see day after day pickies of dear little children wearing trade union badges, waving union flags, maybe paying tribute to relatives killed and injured at work, honouring working class heroes, perhaps posing in front of the eight-hour monument or trades hall itself in the lead up to May Day with double spreads telling us how to celebrate the International Workers' Day under the restrictions of lockdown, but no. May Day came and went without even a mention, the, the same as last year and the year before. And the year. To be fair, they had the excitement of 250 years since the genesis of the His Most Gracious Majesty invasion of Terra Nullius, but this week I thought we can expect mass coverage, dear little children wearing anti-war badges, moratorium badges, perhaps even flowers in their hair, and lots of warriors for peace talking about the bravery of those prepared to fight against train killing, of the bravery of 20-year-olds prepared to go to jail and or live a clandestine underground existence rather than train kill and be train killed in an illegal invasion to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first Vietnam moratorium, May 8, yesterday, which played so seminal a role in true Blue Aussie's history. There had been a 50th anniversary event planned for this week, but of course, like so much else, it's a victim of. On U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world wars and illegal invasions in our region, naturally supported 100% by independent true blue Aussie, we can expect the overwhelming proof of evil China deliberately releasing the coronavirus from, from a laboratory to be revealed any day. Because when Donald and his secretary for U.S. of world state, Mike Pompeo or else, assure us they have the proof, there can be no doubt. The, my word, you thought that one through a ward of the week to a bloke charged with loss of drugs and cash in a stolen car who has to report to the, sorry, the constabulary as a bail condition. Well, brilliant. He turned up at the cop shop and parked in a no parking zone out the front, immediately drawing attention to the car, which just happened to be stolen and loaded with lots of drugs and cash. <laughs> he is a former train killer who train killed in Afghanistan. That may explain something, but at least he could have parked the car legally. 
One item the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media knew must receive wall-to-wall coverage. How dare that doctor, Deputy Chief Health Officer, no less, spoil the jingoistic commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the genesis of the His Most Gracious Majesty invasion of Terra Nullius. Worse, with a name Van Diemen, Annalise Van Diemen, she should know better, who became the demon as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin was forced to make her perfidious comments the most important news of the day with the brilliant pun inflated across P1 Cook, line, a stinker. <laughs> That's so clever, isn't it? How dare, as we celebrate the great Captain Cook, she spurts, sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive leading to a double-page spread, attack, 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 even dredging up a couple of Terra Nullius people to say she had no right to say what she said, insulting His Most Gracious Majesty and Captain Cook. Therefore, finally, the, the one thing Lord Rupert didn't explain was which bit of what she said isn't true. Good morning. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, your community radio station. Our final piece for today is a chat with Don Sutherland, former Chief Industrial Officer for the AMWU, who wanted to talk about what it would take to rev up manufacturing in Australia post-COVID. In a nutshell, the pandemic uh, has forced, against their will, the dominant corporations that control the economy and their government to realise that there must be a pivot back to Australian-based manufacturing. And the word pivot is, of course, uh, their word, but it's quite a good one, actually, because that is indeed what is required. There are two things going on in regards to manufacturing, uh, which are um, arising from the severity of the virus pandemic. The first thing is that already there have been significant job losses, although in manufacturing, not to the degree of other industries like, for example, hospitality. Uh, Secondly, the reduction in wages in the last three months or so has been almost as much at the national level as it is across the whole economy for men in manufacturing. And if I remember correctly, worse than across the whole economy for women in manufacturing. So that's the first thing that's going on in the context of the second thing, which is that the COVID has revealed a severe vulnerability in Australia's uh, domestic manufacturing capability. In other words, the famous integration associated with globalisation of production and distribution The supposed integration is not so integrated after all. 
We do have these fractures in supply chains and therefore in the conditions of a pandemic or any other type of situation which is crisis loaded, maybe in a, to a small degree, maybe to a much bigger degree like now, then the desirability of having a strong domestic manufacturing sector is pretty obvious to everyone. In fact, for the majority of the population, the desirability of having an Australian-based manufacturing capability, and a very strong one instead of the semi-decimated one we have, has been common sense for decades for most of the people. Most of the surveys that have been conducted over those decades have shown that most people just see it as common sense, that if you're really good at ripping different sorts of minerals out of the ground, then it makes sense to attach to that a manufacturing capacity that is world leading, rather than allowing it to be shifted offshore uh, to where there are low wage havens low-wage havens, they are reinforced with dictatorships and paramilitary. In other words, the barrel of a gun reinforces the low-wage haven. This pandemic is pushing forward a questioning of that. Now, the first thing that has to be said is that what the government wants to do about it, they wish to somehow or other get a new focus upon uh, a restored manufacturing capability that is 21st century modern. That what you're talking about there is uh, using uh, artificial intelligence methodology to power manufacturing. Is that what? Yes, saying? I think that's the main ingredient. Yes. Now, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union has been pushing for that type of thing with other detail for. 40 years. The essence of the government's method, however, is to put in charge of this pivot to back to manufacturing the very people who have championed its semi-decimation. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So it's themselves, of course. And we only need to go back most recently to the first, the period leading up to the first budget after the defeat of the Rudd government, where the Treasurer and the Prime Minister, respectively Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott, encouraged, gave the green light to the major auto companies to get out of Australian manufacturing. And that, of course, spins back into auto components manufacturing, in which there were pockets of genuine innovation happening. Would it be true to say that, that it's about who's backing them? Who, who are the loudest lobbyists? And in the AI field in Australia, it's Simmons, and to some extent, I suppose, Ericsson's. Yes. Um, well, uh, they're, the, they're two of the primary corporations, but of course, it's both... Uh, mining corporations, uh, by which I include also gas and oil, and, uh, and also manufacturing corporations. Now, the prime motive is that in, when you go more and more towards automated production machinery and tools, uh, two things are going on. Firstly, 
the accumulated workers' knowledge is being transferred from their brains into logarithms that go onto computer chips. It's the expropriation of knowledge as a dimension of the expropriation of the value produced by the workers. And then second, the other thing that's going on is who controls the whole thing. And the, the purpose of this new manufacturing task force that has been uh, set up reporting to the National COVID Commission and the National Cabinet, uh, Ness is outraged by this whole story, as you can hear. Um, and uh, that, that task force is dominated by people in both mining, manufacturing, uh, the neoliberal apparatchiks in the government, and then, of course, one union representative. Now, that is all about saying, oh, we've stuffed up with our particular approach to global supply chains, particularly the technologies we need to install and maintain and repair our machinery on the job. We need to fix that up. However, we're not going to give control of that to the unions or the workers. We want to maintain strict control over that. That's what's, in my view, going on there. So the second big thing is, of course, the um, arising from the requirement to solve the vulnerability problem in manufacturing is how to manage uh, the workforce and keep it disciplined and associated with that, how to keep the primary union under control. Well, first thing, about, there will be unions who uh, are in manufacturing who have no history, serious history, of dealing with the, the manufacturing policy of governments. Well, this comes out uh, fairly obviously with the battle that was going on over uh, shift uh, building uh, being retained in South Australia and the way the government was trying to work out the balance of power between South Australia and Western Australia by saying that they're going to feed the chickens with some of these manufacturing uh, uh, jobs. Well, uh, let's put that in context. That is, I think, a very important and good example of the potential of unions to be able to negotiate not just over wages and conditions and health and safety, as they should, but also over uh, job protection and job creation in manufacturing, and you can exp expand it to other industries also. What the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union tried to do from about the middle of the 2000s, and then with uh, two other unions, the Electrical Trades Union and one other who uh, developed a mechanism that actually made sure that a big component of the naval shipbuilding happened in Australian shipyards. Yeah, yeah, that was the big fight. If they didn't intervene, there would not have been a naval shipbuilding capacity in Australia now. It would have yeah, been offshore. They'd have given it to the French. That's the direction a Labor government would have gone. And that's, of course, the direction, as you would expect, if they could get away with it, the success of Liberal National Party governments would have gone. Corporations in shipbuilding manufacturing could not give a toss. It was, it was the union intervention and, and a really good campaign that made sure that 
that was done. Now, that has interesting implications for the present into the next few years about how to deal with the problem with manufacturing, the vulnerability problem that COVID-19 has exposed. Is job creation and job protection union business? In my decades as a union educator and a union organiser, that would always be a primary question that I would open up in, in the context of a training course and also in the context of face-to-face -face meetings and informal discussions with workers that I was responsible for helping out. And I have never yet, had never, in all of those courses, this is we're talking now about thousands of workers in manufacturing, had anyone say, no, it's not union business. But for most Australian unions, they have not moved into that territory. There are occasional exceptions, but generally speaking, they've been very modest and exploratory rather than fair dinkum. It's the AMWU and, uh, and also in a sort of a different way, but I don't mean to demean it by saying it's a bit different, the ETU who have been um, uh, serious about it. Uh, the Australian Workers' Union has never been serious about it. Except, of course, to concede pay cuts on the basis of the wrong argument that uh, high wages mean job losses. If you're asking the question is yes, it's union business, and that's really where the AMWU has been since about 1978. The big question for their leadership, of course, was whether or not to agree to be the sole union representative surrounded by people whose tradition has been to hate it. That's a big question and a very, it's not a simple one to no, no, answer. No. Because you know? they're using them as a rubber stamp. Yes. Well, uh, yes, except they can't. I mean, uh, I, I went to a presentation where the Simmons guy talks about the European model, the German model, yeah. and how it's important that the uh, union, you know, he was on the slides, the union is involved in the negotiations. There is not a corporation in Australia that would not utter those words without them being weasel words. That, you know, that is a sop. In fact, if, if something like the European co-determination model was introduced here, and, the, and it, it also, it, the power of it for workers varies from one country to another, then they would be up in arms against it. And the LNP would lead the labelling of that sort of thing as socialistic and communistic. That's what they would say about it, even though that's not true. However, it does, in certain conditions, enable workers to have more inter effective power to intervene in and challenge the decisions made in boardrooms. Well, at it's least they know what they were. Yes, that, well, that's, that's also the case. And uh, I had the opportunity in the last few years of um, working at the AMWU of being a part of the International Metal Workers Caterpillar Working Group. There were significant participation from the European unions, from France and Germany and so on, 
in that. And I had the opportunity to discuss with them the strengths and weaknesses of their co-determination model. They use it, they've learned how to use it in ways that uh, <laughs> go beyond its limits, but not to an absolute liberation sort of position, but goes beyond the limits that the law provides for. The overwhelming view of the Business Council in Australia and the Australian Industry Group and the major corporations that are in there, the Minerals Council and so on, would be to oppose a co-determination model. That will not, and there is no evidence that that will be a part of what the government has in mind with its current review of the workplace relations laws. They're not going to do it. And so when corporations like Siemens talk like that, they are talking with forked tongue. So to go back to the position that Paul Bastian, the National Secretary of the AMW, had to make a big call, do I participate? Uh, knowing all the contradictions, including that they have opposed what we've been on about for decades, and secondly, that the other arm of the whole management of COVID-19 has been for the government to take advantage of COVID-19 to bring in more radical changes as required by the Australian industry group in the, in the, in the leadership role. Um, that will diminish and, and will attack workers and union rights even further. So that's a big call for him to make, and I think it's a very tricky one. Some people will just condemn it out of hand and so on, and it may indeed go wrong or it may indeed uh, turn out to some advantage. The AMW has always been willing to engage in a tripartite form to take on the question of job protection and job creation at an industry level. That's part of our, that's part of how we define our business as a union. And we've had endorsement from our membership for decades to do that. And then I think the second thing is that he gets to, if you like, uh, engage and learn about what their thinking is and maybe to soften some aspects of it. The tough position he's in is this, that when the AMW established its making job protection and job creation agenda originally, it started with 55% union density. Now it, in, um, in manufacturing, it's what is it, 12 to 15%. And the number of hot shops is greatly diminished and that's associated with the destruction of so many good manufacturing establishments by uh, mining and man overseas owned manufacturing corporations over the decades the, the absence of intervention in job protection and job creation means that you become more vulnerable on those other things that is actually the history as well so the history shows now, we're going back through the, into the 80s and the 90s and the noughties now. The history shows that manufacturing would have been far more decimated far more quickly if it wasn't for the AMWU intervention and for those times when other manufacturing unions joined in on that. That's the first thing. Secondly... It has not, there has not been a story of absolute victories. It's just been like uh, a, a story of putting fingers in the dam 
to stop the leaks here and there, sometimes succeeding, sometimes not working. And that's because the power of capital to be able to move capital at, in an instant has been greater than the collective power of the workers and that successive governments have not, who have the power to get that movement of capital under control have declined to do so. And that's a part of neoliberalism as much as it's a part of neoliberalism. In other words, the government says it's not our role to interfere with the movement of movements in the capital market even though that might mean the destruction of a manufacturing establishment. But it is their role to interfere with the uh, processes of workers and their fight back. Um, yes, to intervene with that and, um, and to minimise the power that workers have under the statutory law. Now, that's not our view. From the point of view of the union movement, especially the AMW, that's not our view. And, you know, the record is very clear about how the AMWU has intervened, for example, in ALP conferences to get a stronger industry policy. One, one of the best Australian political bio, biographies, full stop, is H.V. Ebbett's biography of one of the first Labor leaders, William Holman. Okay. And it's called uh, Labor Leader. And it includes in it, because Holman was right in, into the thick of it, the formation of the ALP particularly in New South Wales, including the creation and the struggle over the sub-branches and the political ideology that Labor would embrace or should embrace. And that was actually recommended reading for the troops at the end of the Second World War who were in waiting for demobilisation in various points around Southeast Asia before they came home to Australia. That was part of their adult education, that book. Yep, Labor Leader by H.V. Everett. Um, I think we should finish, though, about where this question of is it union business to intervene in uh, all levels of decision-making, um, at the plant level, at the enterprise level, at the national level and globally, is it their business to intervene to negotiate over uh, job protection and job security? If the answer is yes, then you need to have more detailed workers' plans. They were a big deal in the 1980s, coming out of the work that the AMWU did from 1978 onwards. They are not common these days, although they can be put together very quickly as the naval shipbuilding intervention by the AMWU and the ETU and the other union. Their intervention was based on a plan they developed at a three-day shop steward school. And that was true also of the food industry plan in the 90, early 1990s, developed by uh, union shop stewards who represented workers in the factories. And there are examples in the 80s. We, given that we don't have many of these right now, it also links to, and we should go back to this, it also links to the third part of the United Workers' Union workers' plan for COVID-19. That third part introduces the concept of workers intervening, not just union officials, but workers intervening to, uh, to negotiate over with governments or with companies 
over job protection and job creation plans. And that can be applied to lots of industries beyond manufacturing, but gee, it is now so critical. The, and then what goes with that is that it does require serious union education. And the dominant feature of Australian union education these days is that it does not enter onto that territory. There is just the rare sparks of exception, but generally we're not there. So uh, finally, I think with union density at 15% overall, is it feasible to put this into the union agenda? And in my view, it is, and, but it may not necessarily be the starting points that were used in the 80s and maybe not even the starting point that the naval shipbuilding workers used in around 2007-8, thereabouts. It might be a different starting point. But when you start making working hours and the reduction of working hours, uh, uh, union business and negotiating and so on with no loss of pay, then you are beginning to negotiate over the production side or the distribution side of the economy, not just uh, what's going on with wages and conditions. And that could be the first step into a more, a deeper uh, job protection job creation, industry uh, policy and strategy for workers. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast for today. Tune in next week for some more politics with your Wheaties, Toast, Muesli or whatever. This is Annie signing off. Talk to you next week. He left a car to bar of soap and a scrubbing brush next to an officer to use this down to your bones And before I knew why I'd shiny skin and I felt easy being clean like him I thought this one knows better than I do A triangle trying to squeeze through a circle He tried to cut me so I'd fit And doesn't that sound familiar Doesn't that hit so close to home the way things could have gone And doesn't that feel peculiar When everyone wants a little more So that I do remember To never go that far Could you leave me with a scar So the next one came With a bag of treats She smelled like and spoke like the scene she told me don't trust them trust me then she pulled in my stitches one by one looked at my insides clicking her tongue and said this will all have to come undone you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au